There's a man once who owed a significant amount of money to the government. It was a massive amount, an amount that could not be repaid in many lifetimes of this man. And when he was brought before the court, he was ordered that his family be thrown in jail. And he would have to work for the rest of his life until his debt was paid off. Now, some of you can imagine, right, we have fines here in the UAE, some of you can imagine what it would be like to be this man standing before and hear this news that he's going to be separated from his family. And as this man heard it, he was gutted. He began to weep. He fell on his knees. He begged for mercy. He begged for more time to pay back what he owed. He knew it was impossible. But he was just hoping, just with any chance, he might be able to pay it back. And he begged for patience. And the ruler looked at the man. And in that moment, the ruler felt for him. He was kind. And not only did he give patience, but he gave mercy. This ruler, his heart broke, and he removed the debt from the man. He forgave him the debt. He completely cleared it away. That man walked out with a clear record because in his kindness, the ruler removed the debt. I mean, can you imagine the gratitude that that man must have felt? He walked in with an impossible amount that he owed. He walked out completely clear. And yet, the man wasn't thankful. The man wasn't joyful. In fact, as he walked out, rather than thinking in gratitude to the ruler, he began to think of all the people who had wronged him, who helped put him in this position in the first place. And he went immediately to a colleague of his who owed him money. Now this was just a little bit of money, but this man wanted it back. He'd been on the brink of being thrown in jail, and he walked out and he made a commitment that he's never going to have that happen to him again. So he walks out and he grabs his colleague and he says, you owe me, I haven't forgotten. His colleague is broken. He falls on his knees. He asks for more time, just a little bit more time. I know I owe you, but just give me a little bit more time. How'd the man respond? Some of you know. Some of you know the story. He didn't show mercy. The man decided that that colleague needs to go to jail until he pays back everything that he owes. Jesus tells that story in Matthew 18. He tells that story, it's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And he tells that story to show that there is something fundamentally wrong with a person who has an enormous amount of debt forgiven him, who then doesn't show forgiveness and mercy to someone else who owes a fraction of the debt. There is something deeply wrong with a person who, having received mercy, refuses to extend mercy. Some of you may feel that as you're hearing. How, how could a man respond like that? Just like two and two equals four, those who have received mercy ought to show mercy. Those who have been forgiven of their debts ought to forgive others as well. We're looking at verse 12 of Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. And here's the main thing that we're going to see. Forgiven people forgive others. Forgiven people forgive others. And to see this, we're going to look at three points. 
First is the priority of forgiveness. Second is the power for forgiveness. And third is the practice of forgiveness. The priority of forgiveness, the power for forgiveness, and the practice of forgiveness. The first point we see is the priority of forgiveness. Last week, Pastor Malloy brought us the word and he preached on Matthew 6.11 and he helped us to see that it is good and right for us as Christians to pray for our daily needs, to pray for our daily bread. Sometimes as Christians, we may feel bad praying for those requests. Like it's less spiritual to pray for our physical needs or stuff that is about the body. We can think what only matters is our souls, but that's not true. God cares about our bodies. He made us with bodies. He didn't have to make us dependent upon him for food, but he did that. Every single one of us, we need to eat. We need clothing. We need shelter to protect us from the elements. And God tells us, come, come to me. Come to me and ask. Long before sin entered the world with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were dependent upon God for their daily bread. Eating is not something that's a product of sin. They were put in the garden and they were given food to eat. And long after sin is dealt with, and we stand before God glorified and in resurrected bodies, we will be in bodies forever. God will continue to feed us daily bread. We see the marriage supper of the Lamb, us gathered together enjoying a feast with Jesus. So it is right to pray for our daily bread. It's not wrong to pray for physical needs. But as we are praying for our physical needs, we do need to know where they fall in terms of level of priority. Just as an over-prioritization of eating actually leads to decline in health, if you're just spending your time eating, 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 you're going to be struggling with obesity, other diseases. So an over-prioritization of praying for physical needs will make us spiritually unhealthy and sick. We'll find out if we're only praying for the stuff of this world that we're actually spiritually sick. In the Lord's Prayer, there are three petitions, three requests, and they're all connected by the word and. We see the first one in verse 11, what Pastor Malloy showed us. One, give us this day our daily bread, and two, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and three, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In these requests... We have one that concerns our bodies, our physical life in this world, and we have two requests that concern our souls. We pray for forgiveness of our debts, that is, forgiveness of our sins, and we pray for protection from sin and deliverance from evil. Jesus is showing us that there's a priority here. Our prayers as Christians should be chiefly soul-focused. Now, chiefly doesn't mean exclusively. We should pray for our physical needs. There can be an arrogance if we don't because we think that we don't need to ask God for physical needs, but we can just figure that out ourselves. But there should be a priority on our soul. Do you pray for your soul? Do you pray for other people's souls? 
Not just our temporary physical needs, but our hearts, our minds, our attitudes, our affections. You should. We've all been in group settings where someone asks for prayer for a physical need. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's you're having surgery or you're having to go to the doctor and so you need health. Maybe it's financial provision. And it's not wrong to pray for those things. But as we pray for those physical needs, we should combine prayers with what their soul needs in that moment. Lord, would you, would you bring healing? We ask. Would you give the doctors wisdom so that they work in such a way that brings about healing? And would you keep this person from anxiety? Help them to cast all their cares upon you, knowing that you love them. Lord, would you provide a new job for this person? And would you give them faith to trust you, regardless of the outcome? Lord, would you provide financially for this person? And would you help this person to rest in your sovereign care and to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal? It is not wrong to seek our daily bread. But it is wrong to seek our daily bread if it's at the expense of our souls. Sometimes we pray for physical stuff because we don't want to trust God for the future. We want it now. And Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Mark, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Your soul is what matters far more than your body. Your body matters, but your soul matters more. So there is a priority to our prayers here. But what about our souls should we ask for? In verse 12, Jesus says, forgiveness of sins. Jesus uses the imagery of a debt, financial imagery. What sort of debt is he talking about? This isn't a fine. This isn't a financial payment that we need to make to God. It's not a financial debt. It's a moral debt. When we sin against God, we have a debt that needs to be repaid. But the repayment that we make is not in dirhams. The payment that needs to be made is with our lives. It's in blood. Payment for sins needs to be made, and it comes through blood. Jesus teaches us to ask that our sins would be removed from us. Wiped off the record. Cleared. Our souls need forgiveness more than our bodies need food. Do you know that? Do you believe that? That your greatest need is not for food, but for forgiveness. Thomas Watson, I've quoted from him before, he's an English pastor in the 17th century, and he puts it like this. He says, Though we have daily bread, yet all is nothing without forgiveness. If our sins be not pardoned, we can take but little comfort in food. Two Thursdays ago, not a couple days ago, but a week before, my wife and I 
went to Abu Dhabi so that she could have surgery. And on Wednesday night, Michaela, one of our members, Michaela, came over and stayed with our kids so that we could get up there because the surgery was going to be in the morning and that saved us having to drive. So we went up and we stayed in a hotel the night before. And because we were away from our kids, we were able to do some things that we can't typically do with our kids. We went to the pool and we just sat and we read at the hotel. We went out to our favorite restaurant and we ate a very nice meal. But throughout the entire evening, not once did we forget why we were in Abu Dhabi. It wasn't a getaway. We were waiting for surgery. And while we were trying to rest and we were trying to enjoy time away from our kids, the future surgery that was happening the next day colored the entire experience. Laura was going to go under the knife the next day, and we couldn't relax the way that we wanted to. We couldn't enjoy the food the way that we wanted to. We never forgot that we were there for surgery. This is just a fraction of what it's like if you saw your sins for what they truly were. You would not be able to enjoy the stuff of this world if you knew that there was hell to pay for it. If you saw the consequence of your sin knowing that you will die, who cares about the latest iPhone? Who cares about a job? Who cares about bread? You need to find a way to live. We need our daily bread, but we need forgiveness more. There is a priority. Which leads to our second point, the power for forgiveness. How are these sins forgiven? Now before we jump into it, preaching to a church, many of you have been around church for your whole lives, you know the answer to the question of how sins are forgiven, but let's just stop and reflect upon the historical context of Jesus' words here. Jesus is teaching during a time when there was a temple. He's teaching during a time when there was a sacrificial system in place. If you had sins, you didn't deal with them merely in your prayers. You went to the temple and you offered a sacrifice for your sin. Whether it was a bull, whether it was a goat, whether it was a sheep, whether it was a dove, you took it to the priest and the priest killed the animal so that that animal's blood would count to you. If you couldn't make it to the temple, then you faced the temple in your prayers. If you were removed from the land, you turned towards the temple and you would pray towards it. The sacrificial system existed because debts need to be repaid. Jesus' hearers knew that. Sin needed to be dealt with. If God is holy, and if God is just, then sin has to be paid for. It cannot just be washed away. Otherwise, God would be unjust and unholy. So God gave a system where animals were substituted for people. And if you trusted in God's promise and you killed the, the bull, the bull's blood would count towards you. So now come back to the Lord's Prayer. Does Jesus say anything about that in the prayer? No. He doesn't give us rituals to perform in order to have our sins forgiven. 
He doesn't give us deeds of penance to do. You did a bad deed, you need to do two good deeds to make sure that you balance out. He doesn't do that. He doesn't mention the temple at all, or the sacrifice, or feasts, or the priesthood. Why not? The blood of animals never actually took away sins. That's why they need to be sacrificed over and over again. Hebrews 10 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system had no power in itself. Its power was that of a pointer. It was a picture and a pointer that showed people where forgiveness of sins could be found. And in Jesus, we have the one that all the sacrifices were pointed to. Jesus died in order to pay for our sins. He lived a perfect life. His blood was the only blood. Think about this. His blood was the only blood that wasn't tainted with sin. It doesn't matter if you just have a little bit of a drop of poison in a clear glass of water, you can't drink the water. You have a little bit of drop of sin running through your veins, it doesn't count. You have to die for your own sins. Jesus' blood was pure. And that's why it could be offered on someone else's behalf. He did not need to pay for his own sins because he had no sins. And through faith in his name, we receive forgiveness. We ask, forgive us our sins. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've already heard that the thing that you need most in this world is forgiveness. Your sins are your greatest problem. But you cannot do that on your own. There is no amount of money that you can give away in order to purchase forgiveness. There is no good deed that you can do in order to right the wrongs that you have done. In your own effort, you are hopeless. But you're not hopeless. Because someone else's effort counts for yours. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus' sacrifice counts for us if we would but trust him. He paid the debt that you owe and it cost him his own blood. And having sacrificed himself to God, he didn't stay dead. But God raised him up so that right now, he is your priest, standing in heaven, pleading his blood on your behalf. Imagine the love of this man. Just stop and reflect. Imagine the love of Jesus. He is teaching people to pray for forgiveness. And as he is teaching people to pray for forgiveness, he knows what it's going to cost going to cost his own life. Jesus is standing there on the Sermon on the Mount saying, this is how you ask for forgiveness. And one day he's going to be lifted up on a different mountain on a cross so that forgiveness is possible. His body would be broken. He would be crushed. His skin flayed so that blood gushes. He would be naked and exposed, completely shamed and slandered by people for whom he is shedding his blood for. 
And yet, even at the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. There's no one like this man. There's no one like Jesus. Jesus loves you, church. There's no one like him in the world. The power for forgiveness comes through his blood. And he freely gives it so that we can be cleansed. And all we have to do to receive that forgiveness is simply by praying to God and trusting him for it. One question that some of you may be asking, though, is if all that we have to do is ask God for forgiveness, then why do we have to keep asking for forgiveness? Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago, and his sacrifice was totally sufficient. He doesn't keep dying on our behalf. So why do we have to ask? Well, it's not because every day we need a different sort of forgiveness. But every day we have sins that need to be covered. And we need fresh mercy and fresh grace. We need Jesus' blood applied to us every day. We don't get forgiven by asking for every detailed sin that we have ever, forget, ever committed. But we turn to God in faith asking for Him to forgive us every day because it's a reminder to us and a reminder in a confession to God that we need Him. That we need Jesus' blood as much yesterday as we do today. We need Jesus' blood tomorrow. There will never come a time when we do not need Jesus' forgiveness. Our prayers are a recognition of our own sin. But Jesus doesn't stop with asking for forgiveness. There's a comparison that's made in our text. Listen to verse 12 again. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Our request for forgiveness from God comes from lips that have said to someone else, I forgive you. And this is the final point that we see this morning, the, pa- the practice of forgiveness. Jesus is teaching here in this prayer that forgiven people forgive others. The forgiven are forgivers. As we have received forgiveness from God, so we extend forgiveness to other people. Let's come back to Matthew 18, the story that I started the sermon with. Jesus told that story as a warning for people who want forgiveness for themselves, but refuse to offer it to others. And what we find out at the end of that story is that the man wasn't forgiven after all. Listen to verse 32 of Matthew 18. Here's how the story ends. His master summoned him, and he said, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all that debt. Now Jesus is not teaching that we are forgiven because we forgive other people. 
The man was forgiven before he had the opportunity to extend forgiveness to the, his fellow servant. But rather, this is a teaching that forgiven people will forgive others because there is a transformation that happens that shows you have been forgiven. When we receive forgiveness of our sins, when we receive forgiveness from God, we are made clean, we are made new, we are born again. The cause of our forgiveness is the free grace of God in Christ. But the grace that saves us transforms us and it extends out through us towards other people. And if we aren't transformed, then it's because we truly didn't believe in the first place. It is impossible to see your sin for what it truly is. To confess it and to want to be forgiven for your actual sin. Not imagined sin, not minor sins, but your actual sin. And then hold sin against other people. Because in our forgiving of others, we reveal that we are children of our Heavenly Father. We are born again, born of God. And our Father's nature shows up in us as the Holy Spirit works in and through us, extending forgiveness. This summer, our family is dog-sitting. A couple dogs. Thankfully, we're not dog-sitting at the same time, these dogs. Now, some of you have dogs. Some of you have seen movies of people who have dogs. Some of you are very thankful you don't have dogs. But, and some of you wish you didn't have a dog right now. You know who you are. Um, Sometimes, people will refer to their dogs or to their pets as members of their family. Have you heard people say that? Like, oh, this is one of my kids. Well, we get what people mean by that. They love their pets. Their pets bring them joy. They feel committed to their pets. But that pet is not a member of their family. And you can tell by not just looking at the pet, but by looking at the way the pet behaves. Kids, how many of you, how many of your parents let you poop outside? Any of you? How, how many of you sleep in a cage at night? How many of you eat your dinner under the table rather than sitting at the table? Well, you don't because you actually are a member of the family. You're one of your parents' kids. The dog is not. Right? And most of you speak in clear words to your parents rather than barking at your parents. Now some of you are five-year-old boys and so I know that some of you bark at your parents but usually you speak in English or in whatever other language. Our actions reveal our nature. They show who we are. Children of God imitate their Heavenly Father. On the outside, we may look the exact same as everyone else, but on the inside, we have been made new. Our souls have been transformed, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us by faith. We are no longer children of wrath, but children of God. And we behave like children of, of, of God. We do not eat under the table, but at the table. We are part of the family and we act as if we're part of the family. So extending forgiveness to others 
comes naturally to us. It comes from our new nature. The forgiven are, by nature, forgivers. But just because it comes naturally doesn't mean it comes easily. There's a difference there. Because we have two natures. We have an old man, a sinful nature that seeks to destroy the work of God, that hates forgiving other people, that hates showing mercy to others, that wants to show people justice and give them what is their due. Like the unforgiving servant, this old man in us demands from others what he could never give for himself. We know this is true of ourselves, if we're honest. There's people in our lives that we cannot imagine forgiving. We may give lip service, right? We may say we're sorry, or when they say they're sorry, we may extend forgiveness with our lips, but in our minds, we replay their wrong over and over and over and over again, and we get more mad, and we get more upset, and we show that we haven't wiped that debt from them, but we're holding on, and we're adding to it every time we play it in our minds. Or we give them the silent treatment. We give them what our Filipino brothers and sisters call tampo, where we refuse to get back to them. We want them to know that we're holding this sin against them. Or when we're with them, we may say that everything's okay, but we talk about them behind their back. We spread lies about them. And we show that we are clearly holding their sin against them. There's a problem with this, brothers and sisters. There's a fundamental problem. And here it is. A failure to forgive others of their sin reveals a shallow view of our own sin. A failure to forgive others of their sin shows that we have not yet fully appreciated the depth of our own wickedness. We haven't felt the weight of our own sin against God. In holding on to bitterness and anger and refusing to extend mercy and forgiveness to others, what we're really saying is that our offense is greater than God's offense. Sins against us deserve greater punishment than sins against God. Our glory matters more than God's glory. We have been wronged and it needs to be righted rather than looking and recognizing the weight of how we have wronged God. This is the key if we're going to practice forgiveness. We need to see ourselves for who we truly are. We need to see our sin against God for what it truly is. The Bible uses strong language to talk about sin. I'm reading through Ezekiel right now in my devotions. And Ezekiel has graphic imagery to show that our sin against God is spiritual adultery. We cheat on God with the world. Do you feel dirty? You should. Adultery is dirty. That is what our sin is against God. The Bible says that our sin against God is rebellion against a king. 
you have made war. Are you afraid that he's going to come and he's going to judge you? You should feel something to some extent for your sin. You have rebelled against the most powerful king in the universe. The Bible says that our sin is impurity. We have become defiled by our sin. Your sin required the blood of the most perfect person in the universe to die. That's how bad it is. We should feel the weight of our sin so that we can feel the weight of forgiveness. If you don't feel how heavy the burden is, you won't know when it's been lifted off your shoulders. But if you feel the weight of that burden, when it comes off, you can walk. If you don't know how dirty you actually are, you won't know what it's like to be clean. Some of us are walking around. We've said that we're Christians our whole lives, but we think our sin is light. And we're walking around caked in mud and caked with filth because we've never turned a mirror on ourselves and seen, whoa, that's what I look like. That's how bad I am deep down. You are the worst sinner that you know. I am the worst sinner that I know. Because only I in this room and the Lord know all the thoughts that go through my mind on a daily basis. Know all the desires that I can feel in my own heart. I don't know your hearts. I don't know your minds. But I know mine. And that makes me the worst sinner that I know. And until you recognize that, you won't be able to forgive other people. Because you haven't seen how great of a debt you have been forgiven of yourself. But once you see that, and you stare at it, you can see the riches of grace. We shouldn't stay in our filth. We shouldn't stay in our fear of judgment. We shouldn't stay in our impurity. We should see it so we can run to God to be clean, and be forgiven, and be made new. And then being made new, we extend grace and mercy to others. Christians, the forgiven become forgivers. It is in our nature to forgive. May we be a church that not only wants forgiveness for ourselves, but wants to extend it to other people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. This is basic, but it is glorious. God, we never move on from our need for forgiveness and we never move on from glorying in the work of Jesus. We pray, God, that you would change us so deeply from the inside out that, Lord, having felt our forgiveness and what it means, we would extend forgiveness to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.